everyone. Welcome to Podcastle in the Sky. We are happy to have you here to listen to us talk about two properties that are about the life of Marie Antoinette and about the French Revolution overall. We watched The Rose of Versailles, which was a 1979 anime based on the manga by Ryoko Ikeda and directed by Osamu Dezaki. And the 2006 movie directed by Sofia Coppola, Marie Antoinette. And I am Amber. I'm Jesse. I'm Don. And I am William. All right. And just to give a very brief overview, The Rose of the Versailles is about the life of Lady Oscar, a fictional character based on kind of an amalgam of actual people in that were part of the French Revolution, although one particular person was a soldier, an officer who did join the revolution. But it's a woman who was raised as a man to become her father's heir and is a soldier in the French military. And Marie Antoinette, the movie, is more of an overview of Marie Antoinette's life from the time that she was brought into France as the Dauphine until she and her family escaped from Versailles during the Revolution. And just to start us off, I had a question while I was watching both pieces of media. Was Marie Antoinette a victim or a villain? You know, that's kind of a good question because both of these things, they um, show different perspectives on this because in Rose of Versailles, the way they presented it, Louis XVI was just this feckless, henpecked husband, and Marie Antoinette was the one who was very much against this whole, the common people demanding more, and they were just, and in that anime, she was just, no, they should just shut up, we're the rulers. It's disgusting that they think they can think for themselves. And in the, uh, the Sofia Coppola movie, it's pretty clear that Marie Antoinette, she doesn't actually do much. Like, uh, she throws parties, has affairs, and that's it. The actual political stuff is happening around her. And, you know, I feel like that's probably the more realistic depiction because, well, she was literally a child bride and this was a political marriage for an alliance between Austria and France. And the thing about political marriages is the, um, the wives aren't really expected to be doing any politics. Yeah, I think it's, I think sort of the subtle distinction maybe is because I, I think they both, both movies have a certain affection towards Antoinette, but The Rose of Versailles, I think ultimately its kind of final call on her is that it pities her, uh, whereas the Marie Antoinette movie is more sort of actively empathetic. And I think both of those things come from sort of, as you said, you know, although in reality, in certain circumstances, she did try and exercise her power. We'll probably talk about this a little bit, but you know, I think Akita herself has maybe described her as sort of like a victim of fate in the sense that, you know, she participated in her own downfall. She's not guiltless, but, you know, in the same way that we are all sort of like guided by the circumstances that we were born into, she 
had the bad luck of being born into, you know, the twilight of this crumbling system and was a representative of that system. And, you know, there was almost no way, you know, you can agree with this or disagree with this for her to turn out otherwise because her entire worldview and her entire life was, was shaped by certain, like, expectations. And the, the internet movie is really good at showing, like, the whole ritual process in the sense that, like, your whole life is guided by these set of procedures and so when all that starts crumbling around around you, it's like, you know, you also kind of fall apart because you are not a person, really. Like, you, you're just, you're an object that has been born into this particular historical moment. And despite all the power you have, you're also helpless because you're so raised and then sort of cultivated to be to be helpless. Yeah, I, I would agree with the raising to be helpless idea both the movie and the show were really good about showing the expectations that were put on Marie Antoinette and, frankly, any female ruler or part of the nobility. You are a baby maker, and you also have these various tasks that you must complete. And in the case of Marie Antoinette, of course, she was married off at, what, 14, 15? And... She had no choice in the matter. She had no choice about whether or not she could be the queen. Both the show and the the movie were very good about showing that Marie Antoinette likely had no desire for this role that was foisted upon her and that she could not escape without literal ruination and potentially death, honestly. And can see the way that she retreated, just as she did in real life. You know, she did indeed have a palace that she chose to stay at for the majority of her time and did not have more than her own set of nobles in, despite the fact that she had tasks to meet with and discuss things with the nobility and with petitioners. She did indeed build an entire little playhouse of a fake French village to escape the very idea of her being royal. Uh, you know, Cottage Core Queen. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And and it, it's funny that you say Cottage Core because it was just as performative, Marie Antoinette's Cottage Core life, as these Instagram posts and TikTok posts where very wealthy women pretend that they are surviving off the land in their multi-thousand dollar kitchen setups. <laughs> And their farmland of, you know, great big pieces of property that most of us do not have the income to play with, you know. And so, you know, that, that as a woman, both in Versailles and Antoinette the movie and in reality, just get the sense of a woman who was incredibly privileged and had no desire for the role that was foisted upon her. And then she just kind of was doing the best she could with both the information that she had and was allowed to have and the life that, because she was basically a doll, you know, she was, she was a human doll. And the times that she tried to express any kind of uh, individuality, unfortunately it came along with the, Oh, by the way, all the money you're spending, it's not really yours, you know? <laughs> you know, in both of these, uh, in the show and the movie, they cover like the, meaningless rivalries of the women at court. Like, they both cover that episode with Madame de Barry, with Louis XIV's mistress. 
Actually, Miss Crystal is actually a semi-official position in the French court, which is bizarre. Like, yeah, like just this this weird thing, this her snubbing Louis the Fourteenth mistress in both the show and the movie. It's like this big crisis. And you're like, oh, what? This is just <laughs> some yeah. stupid diff between two women about who was not talking to who. Right. Well, I think it's. I think both both the movie and the show hone in on that particular incident, and I think it's also famous and infamous generally because it's such, like, a perfect encapsulation of just, like, the pettiness of this world cast against, like, you know, the interests of the state, the, the lives of millions of people in the country, but what is preoccupying the time and energy of the rulers uh, and the ruling class, it's, like, this completely insignificant interpersonal incident, and, you know, you sort of get that cynical, like the the Marie Antoinette movie, I think has a very kind of acerbic and cynical perspective on that incident from a remove, uh, and you get it more directly, I think, in how like Oscar feels about it in Rosa Versailles through her character, since she stands out from the rest. But it's just like, like you said, it's it's completely meaningless. Like none none of this has any consequence outside the walls of Versailles. But like this is their entire world, right? Like. To Marie Antoinette, particularly, you know, in, in the movie, it is more, like, straightforwardly just, like, petty and stupid. Whereas Ikeda, both because she comes from, you know, a more melodramatic tradition of storytelling and likes to rise out the emotions, but it also, it, that serves a narrative purpose in the sense that, like, this actually is Marie Antoinette's own world. Like, this is a major crisis for her, <laughs> which is ridiculous when you take even the smallest step back, like Oscar can from Versailles, but for Marie Antoinette, like, this is her world, this is what she has control over, and so, you know, it is a life-or-death, end-of-the-world situation in the same way, you know, her kind of trivial affairs are. And, and as the political situation becomes more and more pronounced, that, that sort of triviality becomes more and more sort of off-putting. But yeah, it kind of serves that narrative purpose in the, in the sense that like these people's worldviews, and this is why they don't see the revolution coming in some sense. It's like this is their world, this is their little their petty grievances and their their rituals of court and all that. Well, I feel like the show did a much better job with showing why it was important to Madame Du Barry to be acknowledged. Like, and right. in in general, the show did better showing who Madame DuBerry was. Like, she was someone who literally clawed her way up the social ladder during a time when class movement was near impossible. And at the end, she even, you know, with the last episode with her in it, we get a little thing where she is saying, you know, I don't, I don't regret a damn thing. You know, I got everything that I could out of this life by my own hands and I I got as far as I did and you know and I would do it all again you know and she's honestly in the show kind of a harbinger of what is going on outside of Versailles you know the 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 things that people have to do to survive while in the movie it was it was much more like look at the look at this stupid frivolous trivial thing and there is a, like a small moment when, when the king has smallpox and has to cast away Dewberry, despite the fact that he wants her to be by his side while he dies. You know, they do that in both the show and the movie, but the movie is just like this small pained moment while the show, it is like a tragic moment for both the king 
and Dewberry that she's not allowed to to be with him in his last moments and and how how pointless that is you know right. is is brought about better in the show i feel because again the only reason why <laughs> the only reason why they cast her away is because the confession priest refused to like can you imagine having that much power you know the king's last words the king's last rites you are refusing him entry into heaven because he has a woman he loves next to him but is regarded as not a woman joined to him in a holy way that that is incredible <laughs> right right well that's i think yeah i mean that kind of gets back into like kind of what I was saying earlier in the sense of, like, obviously we shouldn't, you know, deny agency to the poor king. Like, oh, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, he, you know, all of these people had much more agency than the people they ruled over, obviously. But this is where the psychological aspect sort of comes in, right? In the sense that they were born into a system of rules, and they only know how to function in that system of rules, and you can be punished, even as the king, for operating outside those rules. And that's sort of where the like victim of fate aspect comes in, in the sense that like the latitude you have to make decisions is guided by this thing that has been constructed before your birth, and it's so illogical. And, and the, the movie leans into that a lot. Like so much of the movie and a lot is made, you know, when you hear about the Marie Internet movie, people tend to focus on the anachronisms, like the sometimes anachronistic dialogue and the music. But like it's so good. It's so good at capturing just how like insanely frustrating it must have been even as the king to have to do everything in this particular way at every moment of your existence and again if you you can't that system is in place for a reason right louis the 14th i don't know if it's apocryphal or not but you know his most famous quote is i am the state right you are not a person in an absolute monarchical system you are the state everything you do reflects on the state you are like you are the country. Your person is the country. And so if you do something, of course, but that's not true. You're a person. Everyone is everyone is a human being. But you always have to be thinking in that logic, right? In the sense of like everything I do reflects upon the entire realm over which I, you know, reign. And so it, yeah, it kind of locks you into this path, and it, and the the system makes it very difficult to deviate that path because every sort of road sign is telling you, no, 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 don't do that. Like, this is absolutely how it's supposed to be done, and if you don't do it, the whole thing is going to blow up. And, of course, it was actually the opposite. It prevented them from, you know, assessing the uh, situation objectively and, and making changes that they probably needed to. Just to circle back to the thing that was said earlier about Instagram, something that I think is interesting about both these depictions of historical period is they're very consciously framing the aesthetics in a way that for maximum contemporary enjoyment. Like, Marie Antoinette is very much a Sofia Coppola film. It's a film very conscious of the fact that she's the person who made the version of suicide. She's very good at this kind of indolent, kind of stylish vivaciousness, and it plays with these images famously with the shoe that Marie Antoinette wears. Whereas with Rose of Versailles, you have this what becomes almost instantly a classic shoujo anime look with these rippling roses everywhere, emphasizing how beautiful and elegant everyone is. It's very eye-catching. It's very appealing. It's built for maximum kind of romantic fantasy in the latter case. But in both cases, it's sort of engaging with the fantasy of Versailles, this place of wonderful opulence and sophistication. 
You know, I think that the thing with Rosa Versailles that I found really quite cool, wish I had a better word than that on the tip of my tongue, is the way that, you know, the first, say, uh, 25 episodes or so are really, I mean, we're talking like really romanticized, really very much like, oh, uh, a big kind of gothic romance kind of ideas and set pieces beyond just like the Madame Dubarry stuff, but like, oh my goodness, I have to avenge my mother, you know, and her death, and I've got to pull out a sword at a ball, you know, like that kind of set piece. And then you get to the back half episodes, starting around episode 29 to the end, where we're, we're out of Versailles for a lot of it. And it gets a lot more grounded, a lot more real, a lot more like, no, there's people starving in the streets while all of this frivolity is going on in Versailles, or what you would consider frivolity. Don't get me wrong, some of the issues that they have, like the character Charlotte, who kills herself because she doesn't, she's 11 years old and she doesn't want to marry a man who is 42. Charlotte, by the way, not a character that existed in real life. Or Jean, who is a true character, who is a, a con artist who's conning all these wealthy people and using their naivety against them. She did indeed exist, and she, you know, the affair of the necklace, which we can talk about, put a pin in that. But they, they just feel more, they feel more novelistic, you know, they feel more like something that we are experiencing with excitement, but we can all go back, you know, we can all calm down and go back to our manners and sip tea and gossip about it later. You know, the back half is straight up war in the streets, you know, and character after character that we've been following all this time is cut down. And I really liked how they did that, how they built up this world of Versailles for so many episodes and then kind of took us out of that and showed us what the everyday people had to go through so that this world, this very effervescent world could exist. Yeah, I had the same reaction. Rose of Versailles, like the first half, it was just all these balls and parties and all these various episodes between the nobility, someone got scammed, someone insulted someone, etc., etc., there's a duel. And it's all very closed in, like nothing's happening. Actually, not, it's not that nothing's happening, but it's just this one very closed-in world that you don't even get any idea of what's going on outside. But then Marie Antoinette's boyfriend, Count Ferson, suddenly is sent to fight in America, in the American Revolution, and it's really jarring. It's like, oh, right, that's right. Stuff outside Versailles actually exists. But but after that, then it feels like history is actually happening. Like stuff that you read in history books is actually happening. Because before that, it just feels like it's just stuff that's ultimately is not world historical or anything like that. Yeah, and I mean, that really comes from like the, uh, the sort of separation in terms of main characters, whereas like, you know, Oscar obviously is born into this world, but her worldview, as with ours, steadily expands over the course of the story. We're learning about what's beyond Versailles alongside her, whereas Antoinette never leaves her world, right? She goes to the end having only understood this world of Versailles, and that's why, like, you know, I really like these stuff. I really like that the Marie Antoinette movie actually does kind of end where it does, because it's just that final, like, ten minutes 
right? Where, you know, everything is dark and the, the crowds are outside. and Like, it, it's inexplicable compared to the rest of the movie, which, because of the focus of that movie, is, like, the perfect way to end it. Like, you, you as with the people in the film, are just like, boom, everything has changed. It's over. Like, yeah. uh, so that's, it was a well-done sort of, yeah, you know, kind of uh, period at the end of the film. I think part of this is the benefit that the anime has by having a fictional character as its point of view character. Marie Antoinette, pretty much by definition, has to focus in rather granularly on its subject and thus provide her rather narrow sense of what's going on with the revolution. She doesn't have a much of a broader context for what's happening in Paris or France at large. Whereas Lady Oscar can be basically wherever the plot wants her to be. At first, because of her high breeding and standing, she could be in Versailles, she can be in all the big parties, she can be with all these important famous people. And then because she's their own character, they can push her into the slums, they can have her meet the guards, they can have her see what people are like, they can have her directly participate in the revolution, they can have her storm the Bastille, and then very conveniently they can also have her die before the revolution gets complicated by what happens next. She gets to exit the stage as kind of a perfect symbol of the revolutionary spirit in a narrative sense. Yeah, but the thing is, like in the first half, because Oscar is fictional, she can't actually do a lot in the actual things that's happening because she's not there. She's not going to change the course of history. Right. Like, um, there was um, this one thing where like the Duke of Orleans was going to be like plotting to be king, and you know, he's never going to be king because <laughs> Louis, it's Louis, um, it's it's the Bourbons that are going to stay king and they're going to be executed for being royalty. So it kind of like reminded me of other historical fiction, like, like the HBO show Rome or anything. Like it's these side characters and uh, they're kind of like Rosencrantz and Goldstern are dead. They're there as side characters to the main plot, but they will never affect the main plot because they're side characters and that's not what they're for. Yeah, yeah, but what they benefit from is, as you say, she can't change events, but she can be in these events. Like, you focus in on one historical figure, like uh, San Just or Louis, you can have them in certain events, certain scenes, and you can't have them in others. With Lady Oscar, they just move her around and put her at any historical event they want to. And yes, she doesn't impact any of them, but she's always there as like a point of view of someone we're following, her reactions to the things that are happening around her. Actually, I, I kind of thought of her like Forrest Gump. Like, yeah, yes, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah, I mean, there's, yes. a, there's a Forrest Gump element to basically any any fictional historical movie with a fictional character. It's like, they're, yeah, you're just, you're, yeah. fancy that, you're seeing everything. But uh, with regards to the... Uh, you know, Oscar dying before the revolution becomes complicated. I guess that's a good transition to talk about Akeda a little bit, because she, you know, she's part of this, what's called the Year 24 group, which is this incredibly important, consequential group of artists from the uh, 1970s who sort of revolutionized shoujo manga and shoujo media. But so, you know, her background is quite relevant in terms of the intellectual tenor of the Rose of Versailles, right? So in college, she was a philosophy student, she studied Marxism, and as with a lot of places around the world, the United States and France in the late 1960s when she was in college, right, there is this upswell of sort of left-wing student activism, revolutionary activity, um, some of it which was quite radical and which she participated in. She was in the Young Communist League and, you know, took part in their scuffles. You know, if you ever see famous footage of people fighting in helmets, Cato was probably there. 
But obviously by the mid or early 1970s, that, as in many other places, both sort of external factors and internal factors, led to that sort of petering out. And the, the revolution that was seen as being on the cusp of occurring didn't didn't materialize. And so there's sort of that question of like what to do next. But so Ikeda comes from that background and she sort of says a you know, those those ideals are an important part of her identity, but she also had a complicated relationship with them, which I think is part of Versailles, and particularly with the character of Oscar, we can get into this a little later, but in her other works as well. But, you know, it's this interest in sort of the revolution and this feeling that, and this desire to create Oscar as this principled character who nevertheless, um, you know, sacrifices herself at the right moment and doesn't necessarily get involved, like with what happened with the Japanese New Left, which became increasingly fragmented and bizarre as you got into the uh, early 1970s, mid-1970s. Someone who embodies those ideals and was not sort of compromised by events to come. And I think there's a sort of a personal affinity there with, with Akeda in terms of this, this story and these themes that she'll return to over and over again of, you know, how to reconcile your ideals with your identity and so on. And so that's a, and it's an important part of sort of why Versailles, Rosa Versailles resonated when it did, both with regards to the aspect of Oscar as someone, as a woman who did not uh, sort of traditional gender roles, but also this sort of desire for change, but also a complicated feelings about how that should happen. Yeah. You know, Oscar as a character was, if I could just talk on that for just a little bit, I, I find it, you know, even outside of when she was created and the political stuff that was going on in Japan at the time when it comes to leftist revolutionary movements, like this idea of a woman who is in all but her gender at birth a man, right? That I find really interesting. I, I found her character really interesting especially and and i say this too in our in our modern thinking now of what a trans person is compared to a person who is just a uh, like a cis woman who is masculine you know and how gender is now we know it is a lot more fluid the fact that oscar by the end she is she doesn't have to have a hard line in the sand of what she is when it comes to her gender because you know for the first half a lot of it was about her as her being as much a man as possible and then she falls for Fearson and now she's she has quote unquote womanly feeling and now her gender feelings of gender are all kind of mushed up and she's not quite sure how she would think of herself because Fearson only is going after women and she cannot become the kind of woman that Fearson would want. And then she has, I forget his name, that other guy who was in the Royal Guard with her that suddenly wants to marry her. And she's like, you know, uh, <laughs> like and that kind of like messes with her too. Cause like, like, Oh, so did you only see me as a woman? You know, a woman who was wearing men's clothes and, and is a, a marriageable person, and would I go to your estate and become, a, a, you know, become what is a traditional woman? And her dad basically talking about how much he regrets raising her as a man. And then by the end, Andre accepts her as she is. She is, in her gender, a woman, but she is a woman who does not, who is not defined by women's gender roles, right? And 
you know, that is, that's like kind of an interesting balance to walk, particularly in that time period. Like you have to be all or nothing of one or the other, right? Right. Yeah. No, I think that's a really important point with regards to, because I think Rose Versailles, you know, it's, 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 yeah, it's relationship with sort of gender and sexuality is much more complicated than maybe even sort of reputation suggests. And this is borne out in a, in a number of areas. And, you know, in a certain sense, I think that that frustration with being boxed into one or the other, again, comes partially probably from Ikea's own experiences. And even, you know, there's because on one level, right, you have society at large in the 60s or 70s, which has certain expectations for women. But even among people who maybe were forward looking, the expectations for what you should be as someone who rejects those old gender roles could be almost equally confining. And that's what Ikeda ran into in her own life is why I kind of brought up the leftist activism earlier. And if you play Disco Elysium or you know Disco Elysium, there's a very funny section where the, the main character is thinking to himself. It's an RPG and you can select multiple options. I'll read it here. It says, all right, here we go. We're devoting all your variable brain cells to coming up with a question about communism. Scratch that. Coming, to, <laughs> coming up with the question about communism, the alpha and omega of communism. And that question is, one, are women bourgeois? <laughs> Two, oh God, that's bad. Surely I can think of something better. <laughs> but, so I, I bring this up uh, because there is this interest, uh, this weird tradition of, you know, if you want to be a political actor, you actually have to give up your womanhood, even within sort of progressive circles. And I think of, this is where I'm going to go on my patented once per episode Slavic literature monologue, but the archetypal socialist realist novel of the early Soviet period is Cement. Is it Cement? It's yeah. Cement. Of course. Yeah, of course it is. Go on. There are two important female characters in Cement. There's Dasha and there's Masha, right? And so, and these sort of embody this binary path of thinking, right? So Dasha is the, this is somewhat estranged. They, they sort of reconnect at the end of the story, but estranged wife of Gleb, who was off fighting in the World War One and the Civil War. But in the meantime, while she was alone, she reforged herself into the new Soviet woman. And it, it's not to say that she's masculine per se, but she has abandoned, you know, all of the features one would sort of stereotypically uh, uh, associate with femininity. So like a certain intellectual and like physical softness, a sentimentality, submissiveness, right? She's, she's very assertive, but also her and Gleb had a son. And like in the story, he's sort of in a, you know, communal care facility and, and he eventually ends up dying. And partially that's just a reflection of how devastated the country was at the end of, you know, 10 years of just like absolute chaos. But it's all, it's also sort of thematically suggested and it's not that the, the characters have conflicted feelings about this and the novel has conflicted feelings about this, but there's sort of a suggestion that like a, a deficit of parental love sort of contributed to his tragic passing, but that it's kind of necessary for her to abandon that like, you know, in the most essentialist definition of what a woman is, it's like, oh, to be a mother. So she has to give up being a mother to be, you know, the new socialist woman. And the other character then is is Masha, who's much more feminine and much more girlish. And she participated in the revolution, but she kind of has like a bit of a breakdown near the end and gets romantically paired off with the other character, the son of a priest, who also gets expelled from the party because they're 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 both kind of unfit to to uh, stand up to the rigors of what is necessary to build socialism. But and so like again, it's kind of suggested that like by 
clinging to those feminine features, like she'll never be a true new new socialist person. And Ikeda herself, when she was you know a communist student activist, she actually almost got expelled from her campus's student movement because she liked to dress and carry herself in uh, in this sort of ostentatious feminine way. And some people thought that meant she was like a bourgeois, you know, slut or bourgeoisie. <laughs> so they tried to, they didn't succeed, but they tried to kick her out. Uh, and I think uh, she's sort of channeling some of those frustrations in, into Oscar in the sense of like, what, you know, why, why can't someone accept my full, the, the full bearing of my identity in terms of being like, yes, I want to be a feminine woman. Yes, I want to be an active political actor. Like, why do these things need to be contradictions? And I think that that frustration with being boxed in, even within your own sort of subcultures, kind of channels through works. She would later write a work that's called Claudine, which is, I don't think it's received any anime adaptations, but it's a very early example of a canonically transgender character. She's born a woman, and she identifies as a man, and the story confirms her identity as a man at the end of the story. And so if people are interested in that, they might seek it out, like, you know, as I said earlier, Kita comes from a more melodramatic historical tradition, and it does end on a tragic note. So if you're looking for something more, you know, contemporary stories of this nature tend to be more uplifting. And so if you're looking for that, just know that going in. But it's a really early example of someone, uh, you know, and this was the 1970s, really thinking seriously about the balance of identity. And it, it you know, shows very clearly that these were issues that were on Akita's mind. And it's sort of very impressive that she was... You know, she looked at her own frustrations with regards to wanting to be, you know, a feminine person and also sort of a, an autonomous actor in the world and was able to extend that to, to, you know, other groups and other people and see that everyone is being sort of, you know, boxed in in a way that makes them kind of miserable. And then that might even extend to how she looks at Antoinette, right? Like she was born into this box and the circumstances that, that made someone, she like she clearly has affection for Antoinette despite how kind of pitiful she is. And I think it's because she sees how everyone is molded into these straight jackets that don't, you know, allow them to, to express who they really should be. So it's uh, something that runs through all their stories. I think. Well, I have to say like, just, you know, as a modern watcher of Rosa Versailles, I was pretty impressed with how prescient Lady Oscar's gender struggles were, you know, and, you know, as a, a cis woman, now, I cannot speak to trans experience, obviously, but, you know, I've, I've been a cis woman all my life, and the feminine as frivolous is something that still exists, you know? It's something that the idea of girly as derogatory when you want to be quote-unquote serious is still something that kind of hounds people, and of course it affects, it, it affects men too, men who wish to be more than the box of manhood that, you know, you're told that you must squeeze yourself into but women women kind of have you when you're a woman in the world you have to walk this line at least in modern days of figuring out how to be taken seriously while being yourself and if yourself is somebody who likes the the stuff that is assigned as more feminine your makeup your your certain types of clothes certain types of colors even you know you have to kind of sacrifice other things to make sure that people take you seriously, especially in, say, the workplace. And in the workplace, you may even notice it yourself, like women that you talk to who 
their voices, the, the tone of their voice. I mean, even the way that I'm talking right now to to sound more like I have a point that is good. I am talking at a register that's slightly below what I would talk normally, you know, because feminine is not serious. Feminine is not a view that is one to consider unless you are only talking about the things that are, that are, you know, assigned as feminine, you know, like if we were talking about, I don't know, uh, uh, a bunch of romantic comedies or something. So I, I, I find, I, I just find it like even back in like the seventies, I, I really find it nice to know because oftentimes we, we are kind of a lot of this media, especially in Western media is kind of hidden away that this idea of what gender is, you know, it feels like a new conversation in Western media. And it was not. It never has been. And to see this piece of media that came out of Japan talking about it, like, in 1979 for the anime and before that, the 60s, you know, and of course, it goes before that and before, you know, it's always been there. And it kind of, it gives you a bit of a sense of a, a, a satisfaction. Uh, that's not the word that I'm looking for. Like, just kind of... The word that means like you look at go, something and go like, oh my God, it's always been there. You know, yeah, when, yeah, yeah. when I've been okay. struggling. It's affirming. With, yeah, confirmation. Yes. It, it's, it's very affirming. It's very affirming to know that like, oh, it's always been there. Women have been dealing with this since time immemorial. And I'm, and trans women in particular, I'm sure, you know, because being raised as a man and knowing you're not <laughs> must, must be just like a just just so confining but to pull away i'm sorry sorry no you you talk on just putting it a pin that beyond gender i also wanted to talk about oscar and her class status but continue continue. yeah no i was just gonna say i think that's part of why like versailles has had such a long influential life in terms of like influencing other works you know there there are a lot of stories obviously you know any iconic work is going to have influence or imitators but we, you know, we just watched Utena a few episodes ago, and I think it's been particularly productive on, in that area because I think people connect to it not just on like a superficial level, but they gravitate towards what Akita is pulling out in terms of those issues of identity and build on them in a way that is is very sort of productive, and it and it builds on her ideas. It's not just copying her ideas, and I think that's kind of why that that affinity is why it's a work that has had such longevity and also has inspired so many works that are not derivative, but are like connected to it in a more meaningful way. Anyway, go ahead. Oh yeah. Okay. So just, just a quick, cause I, we've been talking about Oscar for like the character for a little bit, but just to bring in one thing that I really also enjoyed about the anime's depiction of Oscar, who is a noble. I really love how completely naive Oscar is when it comes to the plight of the normal French person. I love how, like, she literally has to have a group of soldiers and, like, realization after realization, a a boy who's about to die because the family cannot sell their cow to get the medicine to treat him because then everyone in the family is going to starve, you know? Or when Rosalie, when, when she first really runs into Rosalie and Rosalie is asking literally to, she's whoring herself out for a few coins to treat so that she can get medicine for her mother, you know, like, and Oscar's, what's Oscar's response? She gives her a gold coin and says, don't do something so ridiculous ever again. 
you know, because she doesn't really think beyond, like, what happens after that gold coin is done, Oscar? You know, like, you, she's got to get food from somewhere. And, and so Oscar is consistently throughout the show confronted with her class and her status. And finally, in the end, she, she throws it all away. But it takes time for Oscar to truly understand her privilege. And I really liked that the show did that. That was just a funny addendum. But I just I just remembered uh, in the late, I think it was in the late 70s, there's a Franco-Japanese adaptation, live-action adaptation. Directed of... by none other than Jacques Demy. Yes, Jacques Demy. icon of French New Wave directors who made such cherished films like Umbrellas of Cherbourg and Rochefort and so on. But go on. Yeah, so um, just <laughs> just with regards to the, the uh, you know, Rosa Versailles being kind of particularly forward-looking for its time, this, you know, you usually think of the, the French just pushing boundaries, but in the live-action adaptation of Rosa Versailles, the end of the movie, during the storming of the Bastille, Lady Oscar, who has, you know, discovered her femininity, does not lead the charge. The, the mob leaves the charge, and uh, Oscar is sort of like running around in a daze, looking looking for her beloved. Uh, oh, and no. she's all and she's all weepy and like uh, incompetent. No, uh, it's just like that's that's not Oscar. You didn't you didn't understand this at all. It's like no, the, the entire point of the story is that she can be both. That she can be both things. Well, yeah. I and uh, you know, just on that note, of course, we mentioned Akita a bit, but the director of this series is Osamu Dezaki, and this is not the first time we've discussed Dezaki, because we previously covered his film Golgo 13. At this point, he'd already established himself as a director of TV anime. He directed a series called Aim for the Ace, or Aim, Aim no Mirai, which was about girls playing sports. So he also particularly had his credentials in depicting a kind of shoujo environment, a kind of soft, romantic girl environment. And here, over the course of these 40 episodes, his scene composition is exquisite. You know, he would be doing movies just only one or two series after this. This was a real turning point for his career as, a, as an animation director, more or less. Yeah. Uh, going back to the French New Wave connection, there's actually another uh, connection that I want to mention, but it's actually to Marie Antoinette the movie. So uh, Sofia Coppola actually tried to get Alain Delon for her movie, Mr. Le, Le Samurai himself, but he he declined to act in her movie. He was kind of very, um, very gentlemanly in his decline. He said that um, his French fans, this isn't the kind of movie his French fans would want to see him in. But this movie it was not received well in France. Um, I, I think it was actually booed by the French audience <laughs> well, when they uh, saw it. And I I can kind of see their perspective on this because, I mean, it's got American actors and like American and British music in the soundtrack. It kind of takes this very, um, this very French period of history and Americanizes it, which obviously did not go well with the French audience. Yeah, she was a certain Yeah, I mean, like, uh, she has Jason Schwartzman as King Louis, and he plays King Louis pretty much exactly the same way he played his lead character in Rushmore as, you know, this kind of awkward, standoffish American young man. 
it's extremely a portrait of that certain micro like Gen Xy generation of American hipness transmuted to a French context. And uh, just an interesting side note, actually, the Marie Internet movie was actually co-produced by a Japanese company, and I think, yeah, obviously, the Japanese fascination with France and Paris in particular predates Rosa Versailles, but it does kind of show the the continuing influence of that work in terms of like the popularity of a certain like exoticized image of Versailles and of France in Japanese media, and I think I think one of its highest, maybe the highest box office return it had was in Japan. The Marie Antoinette movie was very popular there. So, regarding the character of Oscar herself, so, as far as I know, the person, the real-life person that she's most, that probably went the most into um, her design would probably be Julie Daubigny, also known as La Mocan, who was an opera singer and duelist. She was known for having relationships with men and women, and also known for cross-dressing, for dressing like a man. But the thing of it is, like, she died like 50 years before, actually no, more like 80, 90 years before the events that are being depicted. And so the time that she lived in, the gender roles were obviously not as solidified as by the time it was by the time of the French Revolution, because you really can't imagine even an aristocrat, a female aristocrat, doing this kind of thing of becoming like this female chevalier. But the anime itself basically took this person and like moved her to be born 50 years later just so she can participate in the French Revolution. I think that's partially also because interest in Versailles is really heavily weighted was when it ended. Like a couple of years ago, there was a, an Anglo-French TV series called Versailles, and it was noted how atypical it was because it was about King Louis who actually created Versailles. It was about the start of Versailles. Almost all dramatic depictions of Versailles are Versailles at the end because the tension's greater. You have all the opulence, and it's all going to come crashing down. So, you know, you might be interested in someone 50 years before this happened, you're not actually going to write a story, most likely, 50 years before this happened. If you're writing a story by Versailles, you want the revolution in the wings, as it were. Did you guys actually, because I actually watched most of that show. Did it, uh, any of you guys watch that? Yes, I, I the um, the Anglo-French Versailles series, yes, I yeah. watched the whole thing. I watched the whole thing. Remember remember the whole thing about the Man in the Iron Mask? Yes. Yeah, yes. yeah. Yeah, of that course. Was, that, that was a solution to that. That was definitely a solution. Admit that, and you can tell, like, it's funny because, like, you could kind of see there were a couple of times throughout the show's runs where they kind of were like, oh, guys, it's not going to last forever, when uh, somebody somebody was being executed and it was kind of basically, like, screaming out, like, you, you'll see, you'll get yours, <laughs> you know, like, uh, uh, so even, even though it was based heavy into the Sun King's court, they were still kind of, like, referencing that, Someday, someday, this is all going to come crashing down, guys, you know. Uh, so, kind of a um, weird question, but in both the movie and the, and the show, they do mention that Marie Antoinette had an affair with this Swedish count. But, like, how did birth control work at the time? Did they just use, like, lambskin condoms or something? Because, obviously, she can't get pregnant. Okay, okay so... Else. I got really obsessed 
with Count Pearson. So if you want if you want a deep dive into this man, I I did a lot of reading if you're if you're into it. Yeah. Please continue. Go on. Okay, so Count Pearson has been basically an open secret of being Marie Antoinette's lover since well, frankly, since Marie Antoinette was alive. She very likely was indeed involved in a relationship with him. There is speculation that her two youngest children, the one who died and the one who unfortunately got tortured after the family was captured, were actually Fearsons, and that King Louis essentially adopted them into the family. Now, that is not totally, like, that's not something that... that historians totally agree on because you know it's like a a lot of machinations when it comes to who a queen can sleep with a married queen but when you're talking about birth control it's a possibility that the kids that she had were simply accepted as louis the 16th now when you're talking about birth control as a whole now there were different ways that women back in the day could indeed practice birth control some of them were less effective. Douching is one thing that people have been doing for like centuries, which is not exactly effective. But what you would call like a a, a proto sponge was big. Like you you just shove it up on in there and it would capture things. There were various teas and stuff that could be effective or not effective, dependent on because the teas were typically aside from silvium, which everybody who is into history probably knows of it's an herb that was super popular during the Roman times and was known to be birth control and seemingly was used unto its almost extinction. They actually just recently in the last few years found in Turkey, Sylvian, they found it, they found the herb. So it still does exist, but where it was popular in the various uh, Mediterranean colonies of Rome, it got essentially eradicated by overuse. But there were still other herbal treatments that a woman could use back in the day. Most of them induced. They're they're listed as inducing menstrual cycle, right? So the idea of a healthy menstrual cycle back then was you have to show it because if you don't show a healthy menstrual cycle, you probably are not someone who can get pregnant. However, a lot of those herbal remedies that induce menstrual cycle were actually abortifacients. They caused abortions. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, thank you. They caused abortions. And so if you see an old herbal remedy that is like good for the womb, that is probably what it is doing. So women of the time who, especially of wealth, had methods that they could get to if they had the privilege to, right? And so she could possibly have been having affair and using some of these elements. She could possibly have been having an affair and had her children adopted into the royal family. Again, kind of unknown because a lot of records between Fearson and Antoinette were actually lost, possibly purposefully, so that there would be plausible deniability about whether or not they had a relationship. Now, Fearson himself, this was an interesting guy, not a good guy, but an interesting guy. So he meets Marie Antoinette and... Like in Lady Oscar, there was probably something going on before he went to the British colonies to fight in the Revolutionary War. 
definitely was not because he had to be away from Maria Antoinette for her, like, you know, status that he went there. He was definitely doing it because it was going to be like a feather in his cap. He was the attache of General Rochambeau, and he ended up getting a medal. But the Swedish king, Gustav III at the time, essentially forbid him to ever wear that medal because it was to congratulate him for helping a revolution. <laughs> he then served under Gustavus III for a number of years. Gustavus III was the Swedish king. Gustavus gets assassinated, and Fearson does a lot of hopping between Versailles, Paris, and Sweden for a number of years. That was probably from, like, let me think, like, 81, 1781, until around 89, that he was doing this kind of juggling act. And then the revolution happens, and Fierce was a big proponent of the royalist camp. Like, he, he was very much in the idea that revolutionaries were all rabbling, like, peasantry, and they needed to be shut down. And he actually, at the point of the revolution, he had quite an in with the royal family. And there were a couple of times before the final escape plan of the royal family that others were trying to get the family to escape. And Fearson himself told Louis XVI, no, you should stay. You have to stay to show these people that you are the king. And that was the wrong move for the royal family if they wanted to survive. And they did stay past their welcome. And during the final escape, Fearson was the one who drove the just like in the anime, he was indeed the one who drove the, the carriage for a good click before he veered off in one direction to be kind of like a, a, a what do you call it? Distraction. Distraction, yes. A, a decoy, a decoy. The royal family went the other direction. And unfortunately, the other direction where the royal family went, that was where people recognized them. From then on, for the next few years, while the royal family was held under lock and key, he snuck in letters, he snuck himself in a few times, and there were a couple of times that he tried to devise plots to help the royal family escape. And the very last time, he, with his very last plot, Louis XVI literally was like, uh... I'm sorry, Fearson. I had like, there were only a couple of times where the window was truly open for us to escape. And one of those times you told me not to go. And so that door is closed for me. So I'm, I, I'm just going to stay here. I'm staying here. And that was the last time he attempted to rescue the family. He did send coded messages to Marie Antoinette, even after Louis' death, up into her death. And after that, he went back to Sweden and he seemed to be, for all intents and purposes, pretty messed up by that whole affair. And it really cemented his views that the royalist view of things was the way to go. So when his king was assassinated, Gustavus III, Gustavus IV was under a regency for a number of years. And then when he became king, a number of nobles... It's very complicated Swedish politics. I won't go super deep into it. Just know that the noble camp really felt like Gustavus IV was kind of a fuck-up. And so they convinced him to abdicate his crown. And when Gustavus IV abdicated his crown, there were two big factions. There was a faction that supported Gustavus IV's son, very young son, into becoming the king, which Fearson was part of. And then there was a faction 
that wanted the crown prince of Denmark to become the king of Sweden. For a variety of reasons I won't go get into now. So lots of political brouhaha about this. And then suddenly the crown prince of Denmark dies. He dies very suddenly. He got on his horse and he had a stroke and he died, like almost instantaneously. And Fearson's camp, it didn't take very long for people to start murmuring that Fearson's camp, and particularly Fearson himself, who at this point was like second or third in power to the king's role itself. He had worked himself up from like kind of a minor countship up to this role. Lots of rumors that Fearson himself had devised a plot to kill the crown prince. So at the crown prince's funeral procession, Fearson was recognized by the mob, dragged off his horse, and they beat him to death. And that was the end of Fearson. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was not aware that he had such a story in existence. <laughs> This was like covered in one sentence in Rosa yeah, Rosa. Yes. Um, and actually it was that was the actual last thing ever said in the anime. Yes. Pearson became brutal and was killed by his subjects. Yeah, was the killed end. by his the end. And it was like whoa 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 what? <laughs> like that that was one reason why I went on the deep dive because I was like that, yeah, yeah. that, that was that that what? <laughs> I'm surprised that he had such a like long relationship with the king. I guess the king wasn't too irritated that he'd been cooked. Well, you know, that's that's kind of one of those things that you know we kind of know about it. Like you know, noble marriages were all uh, that's true, yeah, for, for power, for land, for the linking of families. It really had nothing to do with any kind of romantic feeling, especially amongst the French court, since at least the time of the Sun King, the idea of Chastity for women was always important, you know, but the idea that no one would have a side piece was almost laughable, you know, right, right, it was right. like, basically, so long as it wasn't super out in the open, and so long as you weren't having a bunch of babies by this person, it was tacitly okay, and while... Well, I mean, the babies are fine if they're illegitimate, usually. Yeah, 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 like, well, with guys in particular, I'm, I'm thinking... Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, guys, like, like an example from English history would be uh, Charles II, who had, I think, 28 recognized bastards. Yeah. Those are the bastards that he accepted that he was the father of. There are probably more. One of them, actually, the Duke of Monmouth, became a bit of a problem. He tried to go for the crown, but, you know, it is what it is. So, like, uh, you know, Maria, um, he clearly was pretty close to the family. Who knows what kind of relationship they, you know, we don't really have any letters from Louis XVI about what he thought of Marie Antoinette's relationship with Pearson. We do know that for all intents and purposes, it looks like Louis XVI was, was pretty square when it came to mistresses and such. I don't see any recorded interest of him having any interest in women. Smoke those keys. Yeah, he just... Build the watches. Love them keys! Loves clocks. <laughs> like, so for all we know, like, maybe, maybe Pearson was giving, was like, he was like, oh, finally, I can focus on my locks. God. <laughs> right, right. That's probably true, yeah. <laughs> but he was clearly close enough to the family that he would truly try to, and, you know, we can, we can talk about what happened to the royal family after they were captured because neither property well okay so rosa versailles somewhat but it's very like marie antoinette did not go completely gray 
<laughs> because of the escape. <laughs> you know, her son was taken from her, and that is a very sad story. Her son was essentially tortured, both emotionally and physically, into being convinced that his mother sexually assaulted him, which is never great. And I can't remember what happened to her daughter. I don't think her daughter was there. Actually, I know what happened to her daughter. Her, her daughter lived and escaped. She was actually, there was a prisoner swap for her and I forget exactly, some French officers or something. So she marries her cousin in Austria, who is like count or something. They never have kids, but she lives. Uh, she actually, she went back to France when Napoleon was kicked out. And she was there in France when he tried to come back in the Hundred Days. Actually, she tried to organize soldiers to fight him. Um, it didn't go anywhere, but Napoleon said she is the only man in her family. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, she died of old age, but never had kids. I didn't really look into why not, but I guess she it was never really like a maybe she she or her husband was infertile, but the line of the Bourbon family ended with her, so. She was also very briefly, technically, Queen of France. That is when um, the king abdicated, and then her husband abdicated his claim 20 minutes later. And so theoretically, in the period, in that 20-minute period, after the first abdication, and before her husband's abdication, she was queen. And she used that title for that reason on her gravestone. You know, I guess if you have it, you might have used it. Yeah, I think she's, like, buried in, like, Croatia or Hungary or something. Because, you know, it was Austria-Hungary. The Empire of Austria-Hungary, so. You know, that's a, that's a you know, was, I, I mean, like, okay, I, I have mixed feelings when it comes to the survival or non-survival of nobility. But, you know, uh, pretty traumatizing to have your whole family destroyed and then to be tossed at a bunch of strangers. But... Such is the plight of nobility under revolution. I had forgotten that uh, Duberry got got executed. That made me sad. Oh yeah, yeah. That was oh, yeah. like a yeah. That was one of the things she was most known for, besides obviously being mistress. Like when she was executed in the in the terror reign of terror, like she was basically begging begging the headsman for her life. Like it was it was kind of like pitiful the way she was doing it. Just just a moment more Mr. Executioner or something. Jesus like, Christ. Yeah. But I mean, at the time she was just living in like this in this farmhouse or something. Like in this country estate, living quietly out in the countryside. But you know, she was linked to the royal family, so they dragged her down and executed her. See, I, I actually feel I mean I feel sorry for anybody who had to be viciously put down you know, in these, uh, in, in the revolution, because that, that's, you know, not, not a big fan of torture and stuff, but I, I think I genuinely feel sorry for Madame DuBerry. I mean, she, she really did come from nothing, get pretty far up the ranks, get shunted out and lived like really without any kind of, like, she just basically faded into history until the terror came to her. And, you know, like it, it's, there's a lot to say about, like, someone who, because, you know, Marie Antoinette, one thing she's known for when she died is how she, quote unquote, went to death like a queen. You know, like, she apologized to the executioner for stepping on his 
clothes or robe or whatever. But I, I don't know, man. If I had to go to the guillotine, I'd be very, <laughs> you know, like I'd be like freaking out the whole way, you know. And so that that feels very that feels very real. <laughs> like she, her biggest sin was that she dared to, you know, like get some money out of the king. <laughs> yeah, I think that's where like Ikeda's sympathy for that character comes from. Like she's she has that moment in the Marie Antoinette movie, but it's sort of ridiculous. Uh, like, you know, she burps the table and all that. Whereas, whereas Akita has more like, well, like, I, I feel you. <laughs> Cause uh, Akita is, again, she, she kind of like went off on her own after, after she dropped out of college, uh, and became a manga cup because she didn't want to, she didn't want to rely on her parents. So I think, I think there's sort of a certain kinship there in certain, in terms of, uh, both what we were talking about earlier and sort of being like a, you know, this feminine person who's like, you know, foot to the road, I'm going to make my own way kind of thing. And so I think that's probably where her sort of like kinship with Dubarry comes from to the extent that that's in the story. Uh, so, um, the, uh, the whole captivity of the French family, the royal family, like Amber said, it wasn't really covered that well. Uh, it's covered a bit in Rose of Versailles, but they were actually in captivity for quite a while, for like a couple of years, I believe. And it's kind of weird when you're reading about this. You're like, what? Why did they keep them around so long? Uh, especially if you're comparing it to like the Russian Revolution or something, when they got rid of the royals pretty lickety split. But if you think about it from their perspective at the time, like killing the king was like a gigantic step. And if you look at like the conflicts within the revolutionaries, some of them we're kind of wanting something like a constitutional monarchy, or you can you can kind of see that, like um, they're fine with keeping the king, but just circumscribing his powers. But from the royal family's perspective, this was a line they could cross. It was all or nothing. Either I'm an absolute monarch, or that's it. They could not compromise on this issue. Yeah, I mean, the, the demands of the revolution escalated very rapidly, sort of guided by both national and international context, because, like you said, um, oh, I'm forgetting his name. What was the guy who helped a lot in the American Revolution? Pearson? No, 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 no. Lafayette, was it? Lafayette, there we go. Like, Lafayette had a very sort of constitutional monarchist sort of vision. Uh, he wanted to sort of reconcile with the, with the royal family. And, and at the start, that was actually like sort of a majority opinion. But, you know, the, the revolution itself, even in its more kind of moderate phase, precipitated an enormous amount of hostility from basically every other country in Europe. And that sort of started to escalate people's, you know, feeling of siege and feeling that, particularly because there were exiles, uh, aristocratic exiles organizing against them. And that was actually kind of one of the major sort of inflection points was that, you know, when, when Louis tried to escape, you know, there was, he was also not, he was not just planning to leave and live his life in normalcy. He was communing to try with other powers in Europe to eventually try and reclaim, you know, his throne in its full, to the full extent of his power. And that's, was one of the major inflection points that led to, you know, the execution, which was that, you know, it's not just that he's trying to flee, he's actually trying to betray France and crush the, the gains that have been made uh, with the help of foreign powers. And so there's sort of 
fears of what had been achieved being snuffed out completely started to, you know, sort of radicalize the process very rapidly. Yeah. Um, so I think uh, we're, we're kind of gotten far Right, we're going end. into history. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> we're not even talking about the movie or the anime anymore. But, okay, I think it's time to do what we always do by this point, which is ask, do you recommend these things ever? I honestly would recommend both. Now, with Rosa Versailles, it's it's both easy and difficult to find. I actually watched it off a couple of those free television apps. Freevee is the one that I ended up watching most of it on. But the quality of it is, it's not great. It very much, like, the sound was very off in every version that I found. And the trans, the, the, the subtitles were, inter- like, the, luckily the translation was fine, but the, the literal subtitles themselves were kind of janky. Like, sometimes words were, would be, like, special symbols and stuff rather than words. But as a property, I really enjoyed it. I, I honestly kind of want to read the manga. Because the one complaint that I have about it is it's just got like older anime tropes that can get a little bit exhausting for them for me, a modern viewer. Like the 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 many times when a panel would come up and like suddenly the whole panel breaks and like pew 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 and zoom 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 zoom. You know, like uh, uh, and the animation itself is pretty rudimentary compared to animation that you see today, but. The story is still quite good. Characters are quite good. Would definitely recommend. Marie Antoinette, I also recommend with a caveat. If you're looking for something that goes really deep into the history like of that time period, this is not it. This is specifically about Marie Antoinette and what her life was likely like. And it's very, very bucolic. My husband, while we were watching it, said, we could call this like, everybody's in a carriage and it would be the same. You know, the the amount of shots, long shots of people in carriages, people in nature, like petting lambs, people eating food and consuming many, many, many. And it's all purposeful. This is purposely shot this way. This is meant to evoke a kind of like bubble that Versailles clearly was and the bubble that Marie Antoinette lived in that doesn't get broken until the very end. But I would recommend it. It's beautifully shot. I feel like everybody does a pretty good job when it comes to acting it. Kirsten Dunst, as always, pretty kills it. And the art direction is gorgeous. Like, the costuming. Did they win something that year for costuming? Because the costuming is amazing. The the opulence. It's beautiful. It, it's almost angry because you're like, holy shit, these people really did not know what was going on beyond their very wealth, very, very, like, their their little box of, of opulence, you know? But I would, yeah, I would definitely recommend. So, thumbs up to both. All right. Well, as for me, regarding Rosa Versailles, so I, I don't normally watch older anime like this. <laughs> well, like Amber mentioned, like a, the older style doesn't really sit well with me the animation style and just like the well some of the directing too but it is very um, important historically like it influenced quite a lot of other works after it and I don't know I, would I recommend it it would really depend on the person I'm talking to 
because I I don't think it would be as a big hit with absolutely everyone. For Marie Antoinette, well, like Amber said, I do appreciate seeing the opulence because um, Rose of Versailles, you can tell they spent a lot of money in the production. There's like a lot of different locations and people wearing different clothes and so on, and that really drives up the price for animation. But even with how much money they're spending on Rose of Versailles, it still feels kind of threadbare as far as depicting the setting because I noticed a lot of like blank walls in the background, in the background of scenes when characters are indoors talking. But in Marie Antoinette, you see all those, all that Baroque stuff, all the chandeliers and furniture, Louis Couture's furniture actually, but uh, anyway, you see all that and you directly understand how these people are at the top of this this pyramid. Like you can appreciate, wow, how many peasants were working for all this gold leaf and so on. So do definitely appreciate how we can see that in Marie Antoinette. Actually, come to think of it, it was actually filmed in Versailles, like the actual Versailles. I got permission. Although, as far as realism goes, Kirsten Dunst was probably better looking than the actual Marie Antoinette if you compare her to the the, the paintings of uh, the actual person. But would I also recommend it? Well, uh, actually, sorry, uh, let me go back because um, one other thing I appreciated about Marie Antoinette is um, this almost documentary style, the way it's depicting these conversations between people. It's kind of like far off. And it kind of feels like you're eavesdropping on a private conversation. So I, I, I didn't like that part. But as for recommending it, so I think it felt kind of coldly intellectual to me. Like, I couldn't quite connect to the characters. And I think that's more like a thing I have about Sofia Coppola's directing, because I felt the same way about Lost in Translation. So I'm kind of, I like parts of it, but it didn't quite hit it for me. Anyway, that's my thing. Yeah, so I would definitely recommend both. I mean, I think with Rose of Versailles, it's such it's such like a unique product of a specific... I love great artists like this. It's like a very specific product of a, you, the right person at a very particular historical moment where you have, like, on one hand, you know, this author who you know, who's very intellectually sophisticated, who has this ideological background, and... From you know the period of the 1960s and 1970s that she kind of came came of age in, but it's also fused with a sort of aesthetic and an affinity for sort of like delicate things and delicate people of like a kind of gentry Japanese lady, feminine Japanese lady of the mid 1970s, and like those two things being brought together into one work of art is like very unique, and it sort of gives it a certain, ironically, it gives it a certain timelessness. And just the, you know, the core story is, is very engaging. And I guess I'll also take this time to recommend another work of hers, which was also adapted by the same director, which is Dear Brother, aka Omi Sama E, which is, I think, even more of like a pointed ideological work in many ways, despite being about a women's sorority. But it's really great. It's ironically like the best depiction of state collapse I've seen in any, and of any like, media I've ever watched, despite being about a women's sorority in high school. It's on Retro Crush. Really great. I like it even more than Rose of Versailles, but I like both a lot. 
and rules of Versailles is very historically significant again, so it's worth checking out. And I like Marie Antoinette a lot too. I mean, I, you know, I, mixed feelings on Coppola's, you know, sort of canon or whatever, but it's a, both a great mood piece, but I admire how closely he pays attention to certain details. Again, like the, the, the whole process that guides every moment of these people's lives, the dinner procedures and the way people have to speak to each other. And, you know, anachronism in historical movies can really, <laughs> can really be annoying. It often goes wrong. There's been like a whole, you know, I know there's, everyone was dogging on, I think it was the, uh, Pride and Prejudice adaptation recently, uh, like had, had really modern, had really modernized dialogue. But I, I think they thought really carefully in Marie Antoinette about capturing the essence of the person through those anachronisms and like I really like the performances and the characterization and the stuff they did a really great job. And yeah, I like it a lot. It's, again, a great a great mood piece, but it's also it does have like a sharp sort of satirical sensibility if you if you let that in. You know, there's there's one shot uh, when they're first getting in bed together and it and it's it's super in tight, but then it cuts to a super wide shot with everyone surrounding the bed and kneeling. That made me burst out out loud. Um and so it does have these little like funny moments to it. And so yeah, I'd recommend both quite strongly, actually. Okay, so what I say firstly about Rose of Versailles, I think it's particularly something I'd recommend to people, firstly, who have an interest in shoujo anime, like specifically, obviously, stuff like Revolutionary Girl, Utena, the kind of rich roses, the, the beautiful the shonen characters with the willowy features and the blonde hair, all all this kind of distinct aesthetic, so much of it is layered into this series. But also, on a completely other end of the spectrum, people who enjoy certain kinds of political anime, especially stuff like Legend of the Galactic Heroes. I remember I once introduced Legend of the Galactic Heroes to someone, and her immediate response was, this is just Rose of Versailles. And, and she's right. The, the stuff with Dubari, especially, there's something very similar that happens in early episodes of Galactic Heroes. So this kind of interest in political movement and royal courts and so on, there's a distinct overlap. So, very strong recommendation on, on that series across the board. I think, uh, admittedly, I would want to say, contra Jesse, I do watch a fair bit of older anime, so this is a little typical for me. If it's, if that's something a bit, that's a big roadblock for you, it might not work, but if you're open to it, I think, I think you might be impressed by what you see here. As for Marie Antoinette, it's, it's interesting kind of continuum of Sofia Coppola's films, which are very interested in this kind of, femininity and excess and a certain kind of playfulness. I think her choice to Americanize it is a good translation of the material, just as the film is in English and not in French. It might as well go further and have a certain kind of contemporary texture to give a better context to how strange these people's lives were and the system that they were in. I think it really works specifically as a drama to portray the film this way. It doesn't feel dead. It doesn't feel weighted down by history. It doesn't feel like it has to run through a checklist of events. This film is very alive. So I, I think generally we had two very good uh, good things this week. Amber? Uh, yes, but what? For me? <laughs> you know, you're shilling the... Thing. Oh, oh, is it time to shill? Okay, yeah. well, uh, I guess we are, uh, we are finished with Rose of Versailles. And if you wish to hear more from us, we have a website, podcastlethesky.wordpress.com. You can also find us at at Podcastle on Twitter, which are we still pretty chill with Twitter, guys, even though it's like... Uh, 
We we are we are still we are still using Twitter as of the time we recorded this account, but given the situation of Twitter, we don't know if that's still true when this goes goes live. You know, it's a fractious website. Yes. Know. We'll we'll figure it out in, in days to come to see if Twitter you know, there's always some I don't know, Instagram and other very but anyway. <laughs> you can definitely find us at Mastodon if we ever decide to go to Mastodon. You know, and we'll we'll let you know. Yes. But as for now, we're still up on Twitter at flyingpodcastle.com. If you would like, if you liked what you heard, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It's always fun to, to read that people enjoy the show. You can find us on Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Google Play Music. Uh, and also Spotify. And also Spotify, yes. And also Spotify. I need to add that to the spiel. <laughs> All right. So we covered the lives of women, very prominent women, in this episode. And the next episode, we're kind of still continuing in that theme, but we're covering teenage girls instead. Specifically, the anime we are covering is Bochi the Rock, about this shy girl who joins a rock band. And we are watching the movie, the Swedish movie, We Are the Best which is also about a teenage girl joining a rock band. So um, very much about coming of age and adolescence. And yeah, we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Thank you very much. It has been a real pleasure.